Well, I want to start this morning by posing really a question. And the question is quite simple. How do you know that you're really a Christian? When it comes to the topic of Christianity, this has probably got to be the most important question of all, isn't it? How do you know who is in the faith and who is not? How do you know if you're saved? How do you know that you belong to Christ? How do you know if you're going to heaven when you die? And there may be many people who will tell you that all you need to do is be a good person and you'll go to heaven. And they'll tell you, I mean, you don't even really need Jesus. Just don't do anything really bad and you'll be okay. There are other people who will tell you that all you have to do is pray a prayer, profess faith in Jesus, and you'll become a Christian. But the Bible teaches that not one is good, not even one, Romans 3.10. And so really, being a good person uh, to get into heaven doesn't work if that's true. And as for praying a prayer as if some man-made formula is going to do the trick, that goes against John 1.13, saying that the children of God are not born of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. And so you can't simply make yourself into a Christian, The Bible teaches that God must do something in you. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that you must be born again if you are to see the kingdom of heaven. Born again, not physically, but spiritually. God must change your heart and make you new from the inside out. However, there are those who have not been born again by God, who have deceived themselves into believing that they're Christians when they are not actually Christians. And this is what Jesus deals with in our text today. So have your Bible handy. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 in your copy of Scripture, Matthew chapter 7. We've been here for a little bit here. And really, I've been saying this for weeks now, that the end of Matthew chapter 7 is really the summit peak of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the the climax. It's the dynamic conclusion to his sermon In the final verses of the sermon, Jesus is offering up four warnings, four warnings that are designed to drive his his audience to action. As I said a couple weeks ago, it sort of gets them off the ropes and into the ring where there is response to be had. The first warning is to his listeners, and he tells them to enter by the narrow way that leads to life. So the command for them is to enter There's a broad way, there's a narrow way, I want you to go through the narrow way. The second warning is to beware of false prophets, to beware, to watch out for false teachers. And his third warning, however, is probably one of the most difficult things ever spoken to a human audience. In fact, Matthew 7, 21 to 23 constitute what I'm calling today a false convert's worst nightmare. And I believe it will be a sobering warning For us as well. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Now, keeping in mind here as we read these verses that Jesus is preaching to a large crowd of people and he's directing the teaching specifically to his disciples, okay? However, there were likely many people in the crowd that believed that they were, in fact, his disciples when they truly weren't. They were false disciples. And that's the people that he's speaking to in these verses 21, 2, and 3. Whereas verses 15 to 20 addresses false prophets, verses 21 to 23 address false professors. And so this morning we're going to look at each of these verses and draw out truth from each verse as we read them. But verse 21, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mentions uh, people here that address him with the title of Lord. Now, in that day, people used to use this title of Lord really as a a polite way. It's kind of like saying sir. It was a a formal, sort of a proper title, a title of respect. And certainly, a large number of people recognized that Jesus was a wise and respected teacher. Even though there were many opponents against him, the large majority of people in Israel at least acknowledged that he was something special. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 affirms to Jesus that even the Sanhedrin believed that he was a teacher sent from God. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and addresses him very politely. He says, a good teacher. You know, he doesn't just call him teacher as a sign of respect, but he even tries to assign a, a value to him. You're a good teacher. He wants to flatter him. This is a common thing. R.C. Sproul has noted that it was a Hebrew custom to repeat a name as a term of endearment. I thought this very interesting. For example, uh, we read in the scriptures when God is addressing Moses, he calls him Moses, Moses. Or when Jesus addresses Martha, 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 or even Saul, Saul. It indicated familiarity, intimate knowledge. And so while on earth many of Jesus' disciples would have referred to him as Lord, Lord, as a sign of respect and really familiarity with their teacher. But Jesus, I believe, has more in mind here. He does not simply mean to say that the issue is between those who show him respect and those who don't. His use of Lord certainly refers to the title as master, even deity, even God. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the title Lord was synonymous with the name of God, Jehovah. Now, his his audience may not be thinking along these lines, but I guarantee you that Jesus is. Because he knows that a day is coming when he's going to return to the earth in flaming fire. And the Bible teaches that every eye will see him. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 affirms that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not just Lord as in Sir but Lord as in Master, Sovereign, God. That's who Jesus is. When we say Lord, there's a lot more attached than just a a polite title. He is Lord of all. The Bible calls Him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Supreme Lord of all. And so in the last days, He's referring to people who address Him rightly as Lord, even try to relate to Him intimately and say, Lord, Lord. Now, to be clear, there are people who have correct theology. They don't just call Jesus rabbi, but they call him Lord. And yet he affirms, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So you can even have good theology. You can rightly identify who Jesus is. You could even claim to know him personally. But he is not obliged to let anyone into heaven simply because of their profession. It's clear that it's not based on what you say. You can say all kinds of things. But rather, Jesus continues in the second half of verse 21. He says, He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Well, what does he mean by this? Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We were already here this morning once. I want to bring us back again. This is the epistle of James. And this was a a topic of heated discussion, uh, certainly even at the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago. In fact, Martin Luther wasn't even convinced that this book of the Bible belonged in the New Testament. Well, why? Well, because the doctrine presented in James appears to contradict the the doctrine of justification by faith. Furthermore, when you read uh, Galatians, when you read Romans, and then you read James, it, it almost seems like their teaching is conflicting. But the question is, well, is it? The middle of James chapter 2 brings us really even into the very heart of Jesus' statement in Matthew 7, 21. And I believe that that James 2 provides a helpful commentary. Look again at this with me. James 2, 14. What use is it, my brethren, when someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. And show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe. And shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, with regards to the doctrine of justification... We understand that the Bible teaches that it is a legal act of God. Justification, the doctrine itself, is a legal act of God whereby God declares sinners to be righteous even though they're not. He reckons a righteousness that belongs to Christ and he imputes it or credits it to the sinner and then takes the guilt and the shame and the punishment and the penalty of their sin and imputes it to Jesus who then dies and pays for that on the cross. There's, it's called a double imputation. It's sort of this great exchange, that's what Luther used to call it, whereby we receive a righteousness that does not belong to us and Christ receives a body of sinfulness that does not belong to him and God credits both legally. 
Again, Romans 3.28, Paul writes, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, Galatians 2.16, We are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He says, Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So what Paul is saying is that God does not save you, redeem you, forgive you, justify you based on any work that you have done. So that is not the basis of your justification. The basis of your justification before God is the righteousness of Christ. By His own grace, He declares you righteous in Christ, and the only means of justification is your faith. So the old Reformation slogan was sola fide, faith alone. That was the battle cry. And so in the eyes of God... When God looks at us and looks at our life, we are justified by faith alone apart from any works. But the question arises, well, okay, how do we know that we've been justified? I know that God sees my heart and God sees my standing and God sees whether or not I'm justified. But how do I know that I've been justified? And, and for even further than that, how, do, how does the church know? How does everybody else know that I've been justified? That's the issue here. A person who has been born again, who has received a new nature, who has received a new heart, a person who has been redeemed by Christ and received the Holy Spirit, that person will begin to change. There will be a a manifestation of change inside their heart which begins to work its way outward. The heart begins to change. The mind begins to change. Their words begin to change. And lo and behold, the life of that person then begins to change. And so one of the evidences that a person has become a Christian is that they experience some measure of life change. Once again, you can say, I'm justified by faith, I believe in Jesus, but have nothing else after that for the rest of your life, and you could look and say, well, how do you know? What proof is there that you have been saved, that you have been changed? One evidence that a person has been justified is that they are being sanctified. They're growing in Christ-likeness. And that's what James is getting at here. James asked the question, can faith alone save you? And the answer is, not by faith that is alone. So you're saved, yes, by your faith in Christ. But that faith can't just exist in a vacuum by itself with nothing else coming out of it. That's James' whole point. In other words, if you say you believe in Jesus, but that faith never bears any fruit, that's Jesus' metaphor, it bears no fruit, then there is no evidence that you have been saved by grace through faith. Jesus says in Matthew seven nineteen, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and burned. So Jesus says, forget the James versus Paul argument which is not really even an argument at all because we understand that they harmonize well. But if you take the words of Jesus, even our Lord, at His word, He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit, if your life bears no fruit, I'm going to cut you down and throw you into the fire. And you say, Lord, Lord. And He's saying, where is your fruit? James gives a couple of examples of this. The first comes in verses 15 and 16. He says, if you see a person who is in need, and they can be helped by you, so you're, you're in a position where you, you see a need, and you can actually do something about it. Sometimes we see needs, and there's not much we can do about it, 
And the Lord just has not given us an opportunity. But some, there are many times when a need will come to you in your line of sight, in your path, and there's an opportunity for you to do something about it. And it says here that you don't help them in the context here. You don't help them. He says, well, what good is that then? If a person comes to you and says, I, I don't have any money for food today, and you have money in your pocket to give them for food, and you don't do it, you say, I'll pray for you. What good is that? That does absolutely nothing. That's James's point. The second example comes in verses 21 to 23. He talks about Abraham being justified by faith before God, but that justification produces an obedience. God tells Abraham to put his only son on the altar, and what does he do? Does he say, well, you know, he's probably speaking metaphorically. That doesn't really apply to me. My wife thinks it's a bad idea. Does he ignore God and yet claim the promise? No, the Bible says he obeyed. He obeyed, and by God's grace, he provided a substitute sacrifice to him. That's why he says in Genesis 15, 6, that he was justified, it was reckoned righteousness to him, because he believed God. Romans 4 has a great commentary. Paul expounds it brilliantly. That he, he didn't know how it was going to all come together. Abraham didn't see it. God made a promise. He says, I don't understand how this is going to happen, but I take God at his word and say, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to obey and trust that God is going to deliver my son. That he'll resurrect him somehow. And yet God stopped him right before the dagger came down into his heart. Stopped him and provided another way. Abraham was justified. But the point is clear. Faith produces obedience. That's why he says... At the end of verse 26, I'm still in James 2 here, he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead. Powerful imagery there. you got a body with no life in it, the body's dead. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is why Jesus says what he says elsewhere. In Luke 6.46, Jesus utters a very similar phrase. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say? You call me Lord. You've got great theology. You call me Lord, Master, Lord, Deity, Messiah. But you don't listen. You don't do what I say. The implication is this, if Jesus has died for you, if he's paid for your sins, why then would you turn around and go back the other way, back into your sinful life and disobey God deliberately? If you disobey your Lord, then is he truly your Lord? If you're living in contrary, a contrary life to his command, if he says be holy and you're addicted to impurity, If he says, obey my command, and you disobey him at every twist and turn. If he says, live a life of righteousness, and you live a life of wanton disobedience. Now, Jesus is Lord. Nothing can change that. But a person who does not obey the Lord proves that they don't belong to him. James 1.23 says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he says, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So right theology without application of that and lifestyle of that 
It's like going and looking in the mirror, seeing your face and going about your day and totally forgetting what you look like. That's, that's James' example. Again, just because you say you believe in Jesus, it does not necessarily mean that you belong to him. You must therefore, as Jesus says, do the will of God in obedience from a heart that has been justified. A justified heart, a changed heart, a regenerated heart, a heart that has new life in it, a heart that has the Spirit of God indwelling in this heart is going to have some kind of fruit. Following Jesus' warning to those who simply profess faith in Him as Lord, He addresses in verse 22 those who claim to be heaven-bound because of the power of their ministry. Look at verse 22. Go back to Matthew 7. 7.22. He says, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons? And in your name, perform many miracles. He notes that many will make this claim. Again, maybe I've got shell shock from Matthew 7, but every time I see the word many, I get a little scared. Many. Back in verse 13, he says, many people are on this broad road that leads to destruction. But many, he says, come to him on that day. What day are we talking about? What is that day? It's the day of judgment. In the Old Testament, this is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's called the day when Christ returns, as the Apostle Creed declares, to judge the quick and the dead. At the return of Christ, every person will stand before the Lord to give an account. Now, the body of Christ, the church, the saints of God, will stand before the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, and give an account. But we also know that we will be rewarded with eternal life. We still have to give an account for our life, but again, we've been justified. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you go to God with a status of no condemnation. Again, God still looks at your life, but you will not be judged and punished because someone has already been judged and punished for you in your place. That's Jesus. And so, yes, we give an account because we have abided in Christ. We live our lives in Him. He is my justification. He is my life. I cling to Him. But what about those who do not belong to Christ? Revelation 20 verse 12 says that those who do not belong to Christ will be judged according to their wicked deeds and thrown into the lake of fire. It's a serious charge. It's a serious business. Here we see that those who have not just professed faith in Jesus as Lord. It's not just their profession. Now there's more. They're claiming to do the works of God. I didn't just say, Lord, Lord. I actually did some things. Three examples he he gives here. What kind of deeds are they claiming to have done? They claim this. Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? So three things. He says, uh, prophesying, casting out of demons, and performing miracles. These are all supernatural ministries and gifts of the Spirit. Now, they seem to be really the most miraculous of all the gifts. Let's look at these. The first one is prophesying. Prophetuo in the Greek is really the, the telling forth of divine counsels. Now, some have seen really a, a twofold operation of prophecy. 
I just thinking of William Perkins has a book in the 1600s called The Art of Prophesying. He doesn't actually mean sort of the dispensing of new information. His book is actually a book on preaching, just regular old preaching. But really, we understand there's really two, a twofold operation of prophecy. There's foretelling, and then there's foretelling. Foretelling would be giving forth new or expedient words from God, whereas foretelling would be declaring what God has already said. And so that's prophesying. Next, the casting out of demons. In the time of Jesus, even today, people are afflicted and even possessed by demons. One powerful ministry of Jesus and his apostles was to cast out demons from a person and really liberate that person from bondage. It was a powerful ministry. A person is afflicted, demon-possessed. I mean, they, they, you read the accounts in the Gospels, and it's, it's pretty nasty. I mean, they're, they're just afflicted and tearing themselves apart, and they're just no good to society because they're so afflicted. Jesus goes, casts out the demon, the demon leaves, and all of a sudden, they're in their right mind. They can function again. So that was a powerful ministry. That's the ministry he talks about here, casting out demons. And lastly, performing miracles. Literally, in the Greek, it could be rendered mighty works. No doubt this is a reference to signs and wonders, to, to healings and all kinds of supernatural ministry. And notice the threefold repetition here, in your name, in your name. We did this in your name. These people are claiming to be doing things in the name of Jesus. We hear so much about this today. You turn on the TV, you turn on TBN, everything is done in the name of Jesus, by the power of the name of Jesus. So they'll use his name. But I fear that for countless pastors and evangelists and Christian leaders and self-proclaimed prophets and apostles even today who perform seemingly miraculous acts or give divine utterances all in the name of Jesus, I fear that many of them are not even Christians. Well, what warrant do I have to say that? That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus says. Now, some have questioned whether or not these people are truly even performing signs and wonders and prophecy. Are they just lying about this? Are they just making a story up? We have to remember that even Satan and his minions, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.9, even they perform signs and wonders. So it is possible. We were in James, there's a, the demons who believe in God. They have faith. And they shudder and they're afraid. They believe that God is one. That's a theological statement. God is one. But the demons aren't going to heaven. So again, you can have faith like demons. You can perform signs and wonders like Satan. And still God has no obligation to let you into heaven. And so the existence of even a supernatural ministry is not proof of a genuine relationship with Christ. Interestingly, John Calvin applies this verse to wicked pastors. Calvin notes, Though Christ includes all hypocrites under his teaching, he is particularly criticizing the pretended teachers who put themselves on a great pedestal. Those with great and powerful and notable ministries. And maybe even today the sentiment could be this. Did we not write many books in your name? And in your name, preach out sold-out conferences? And in your name, launch great worldwide ministries? Many can pat themselves on the back. It's very tempting. We're, we're a culture that is just addicted to worshiping celebrities. And that poison finds its way into the church. As soon as you begin to do anything, people begin to prop you up. And it's really dangerous. The power 
popularity, or position mean nothing at all without godly obedience. Listen to the words of Gilmanton's own Isaac Smith. The lowest place in hell will be assigned to wicked ministers. This is a most alarming thought that ought to quicken all in the sacred character to great watchfulness against sin and to unremitted diligence and fidelity in discharging the duties of the ministry, lest after they have preached to others, they themselves should be cast away. They should happily unite the harmlessness of the dove with the wisdom of the serpent. It is absolutely necessary that public teachers should practice as well as preach. Their lives should be a daily comment on their preaching. Example is more than precept, especially the good example of ministers will do more to reform the people than all their pulpit discourses. Robert Murray McShane, the greatest Scottish minister, said, What my people need the most from me is my holiness. It's totally true. You can have a dynamic profession. You can have right theology. You can even be attempting big things for God. But how does Jesus evaluate all this? What does He say? Look at verse 23. He says, I will declare to them on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, in the response to those who say, Lord and Lord, but don't do what He says. Despite the powerful works being done in His name, He declares to them, and and the sense of this phrase declares to them, the sense is that He's speaking plainly. One rendering of the verse is, I will tell them to their face. Jesus pulls no punches here. person who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, and has no obedience to their life, he goes, I'm going I'm to go right to their face and tell them how it is. He's going to say to them, I never knew you. This word for know is more than just factual knowledge or mental assent. Of course Jesus knows who we are factually, certainly experience. I mean, he made us. But this, this sentiment is more, this is a, a personal, intimate acquaintance. This is relationship. The way a husband and wife know each other. John 10.14, he says, I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I know my sheep the way that God the Father knows me and I know Him. How close of an intimate relationship is it between the first and second person of the Trinity? It is infinitely perfect. It is unified It is the most intimate, perfect relationship ever to exist. And yet he says, I know my own. I know my sheep in the same way. And then he says, and they know me. We get to understand the mind of God through His Word. We get to read things and know things about Christ and even experience them personally. When you're a Christian, you know Jesus and you know that He's changed you. And you know that He's your Lord. And you know that He loves you. And you can't fathom the depth of His love, but you know it. I oftentimes think to myself, I've never missed somebody so much whom I've never seen face to face. That's the heartbeat of every single one of us, is it not? To love and to long for the Lord. To want to see Him, to be reunited to Him. 
out of a sincere love, a sincere knowledge, an intimate knowledge. Those who he knows intimately and relationally, those are the ones that belong to him. But to the false converts, he says this, I never knew you. You have no part with me, he says elsewhere. Can you imagine getting to the end of your life after claiming Jesus for years and then seeing Him on Judgment Day and say, Here I am, Lord, Lord. And have Him say to you, I have no idea who you are. I don't know you. I mean, can you fathom that? And how many people claim to be Christians and say, I'm doing big things for God, and He doesn't even know them. There are these rogue ministers and rogue believers claiming Jesus. Nothing there. He doesn't even stop here, by the way. He quotes Psalm 6.8. He commands, depart from me. Go away. Get out of my sight. Not even do I not know you. I don't even want to see you. Go away, depart from me, he says, you who practice lawlessness. Suddenly we see the reason for the dismissal. It's not that they have bad theology. It's not that they didn't try to do big things for the kingdom. Despite their profession, despite their ministry deeds, they lived a life of lawlessness before God. He's not simply talking about the fact that they have a sin nature, because we all have a sin nature, don't we? All of us can look at our own lives and say, yeah, there, there are things in my life that I've done that I hate, that have been an affront to God, that attack His holiness, that defile me as a person, and I need to repent for those things. But here, he's pointing out this habitual practice of lawlessness and unrighteousness. A person that just runs headlong into sinful behavior over and over and over again with no regard, with no guardrails, with no repentance, with no fidelity at all, with no desire to change. They, they profess Jesus, but they just keep on sinning in the same way with, with no brakes all, at, at all. They're, they don't even tap the brakes in their life of sin. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. They sin with reckless abandon, with no regard for Christ. And this disregard for the holiness and righteousness of the Lord, this is what Paul warns about. 2 Timothy 2.19, he says, The Lord knows who are His. And then he says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Beloved, you have to strive. you got to strive. Now, it's not that you're picking yourself up by your bootstraps and I just got to go muscle my way through. That's not it. We don't live our lives as Christians in the flesh by our own power. Paul says, I'm weak. Rather, you're humbling yourself, you're submitting yourself to God, and you're praying, you're saying, Lord, help me in my weakness. Help me in my affliction. I know that when I'm weak, you're made strong, so be strong for me, Lord. And help me. You don't just take your hands off the wheel and say, well, I hope you can sanctify me. No, you join with Him. You say, Lord, show me where my sin is so I can repent. Show me the behaviors I can turn from them. Help me take the next step, Lord. I don't have enough strength for tomorrow, but show me now what I have to do and I'll do it, Lord. 
It's a reliance, a dependence on Christ. Again, this is not working your way to heaven by your deeds. It's about a regenerated, born-again believer living in obedience to the one who saved them. Again, will the obedience be perfect? No, it won't. It won't. But you must strive, he says, to enter by the narrow gate. Strive! means you work. Paul says, I, I box. I don't punch the air, pretend. No, I hit something when I work. I buffet my body. I make my body my slave. Beloved, do you enslave your body? Then your mind? Do you work hard to take every thought captive? And when you recognize that you have sinned, do you repent? It's not just the life of a believer to to repent for the big sins, but the small ones too. Are you striving hard after Christ to honor Him, to love Him, to know Him, to humbly and earnestly and faithfully seek to live in obedience to Him? 1 John 2-3 says it this way, By this we know, I love you, says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, but does not keep His commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love, is God, the love of God has truly been perfected. So if you say, I love Jesus, but have no regard for what He tells you, even plainly in His word, I'm not even talking about conscience now, I'm talking about what is explicit in His word. Then He says, you're a liar. You don't even know Jesus at that point. But we love God because He first loved us. And God is the one who has changed us. How do you know that when you get to heaven and you greet the Lord, He's going to say, welcome home. I want to hear those words, don't you? Welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I used to think that that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, was kind of just an automatic. Like that's what you get when you walk in the door. But the longer I'm a Christian, and I would imagine many of you are, have the same testimony, you realize that it is an endurance. That it's not a matter of doing big things for God. It's a matter of mastering the small things. And the Bible teaches that the one who endures to the end will be saved. They're not saved because they endure, but they endure because God has changed them. And they walk step by step in obedience to the point where they get to the end, they're completely exhausted, they cross the finish line on their face with nothing left, and he picks them up and he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? The Son of the living God? Come to redeem the lost by His own sacrifice. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He died and rose from the grave, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you desire to know Him and to love Him and to obey Him and to glorify Him? Do you hate your sin in such a way that you cling to your Savior? My friends, this is not a game. If you've professed Jesus, but that's all you have, This is not a game. Turn from your sins. Because I'd ask you, if you died today, if you drove home and on the way home you got into a car accident and you didn't survive, 
Or if you go home and go to your bed tonight and you don't wake up in the morning. Death never comes when you think it's going to come, does it? Nobody I know had that date planned. You always hear stories like, oh, so-and-so, they went to the hospital, and next thing you know, they were gone. We thought we had more time. You always think you have more time. So once again, if today you died, where would you go? Where would you wake up? Are you trusting in your own power or profession? Or are you trusting in the finished work of Christ? And if so, are you living your life in obedience to the one who saved you? My friends, be on guard. Don't presume too greatly on His grace, but humble yourself before the Lord and seek to know Him and be known by Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there is no greater love. Today especially, everybody was talking about love. But we know that there is no greater love that exists than one who would lay down his life for his friends. And God, you have laid down your life for us. You've given of yourself freely. John 10 says that you go as the good shepherd and you lay down your life for your sheep. The sheep that you know and the sheep who know you that you have given of yourself to us selflessly, sacrificially, willingly, that we might be born again and come to know you and walk in obedience to you, Lord. Not in a rigid, legalistic, oppressive way. You say that your burden is easy and your yoke is light. And so, Lord, that you change our constitution where every impulse of our regenerated heart desires to obey. We struggle in the flesh, Lord, yes. But deep down, we desire to obey. I want to be like you. I want to follow you. I want to know you. And we hate every impulse in us that tries to steer us away from that relationship. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us today. I pray for every individual believer here. I pray for them, Lord, in my heart by name, that you would work in their lives and convict them, but lift them up and encourage them, give them strength to walk. Lord, help them to remove obstacles and stumbling blocks, that their faith would be sure, that their love for you would be sure, that their obedience for you would be sure, that they would see that you've prepared works beforehand, that they would simply walk in them. And so, Father, how great you are to love us and to give up your own Son for us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, maybe they claim you, they claim your name, but don't know you, I pray that they would turn from their sins, trust in Jesus, and really know you and be changed. I ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen.